I am uh, glad that we're here with you this morning when we, more than any other Sunday, we might not have been here this, this Sunday, but um, we are still obviously eagerly anticipating the arrival of our daughter. And so, Lord willing, that'll happen hopefully in the next week, but that'll happen in the Lord's timing. And so glad to be with you to open up the word together this morning. And even in the midst of, of some of that waiting this past week, I was reading a a book by a man named John Owen about the glory of Jesus. And one of the things that he talks about in this book is that we tend to focus on all the million different things or problems or issues in our life. And we, we put all our attention and our energy there. And what he thinks that is the better solution in the way that we can actually navigate our Christian life more steadily is to bring our eyes off of those things for a moment and actually go up to Jesus and sit and contemplate how glorious and how wonderful and how great he is. Let us be transformed by doing that and then return to all the different things the Lord has given us and see that we will be better able to navigate those things as followers of Christ. He says, let us live in constant contemplation of the glory of Christ and power will then flow from him to us. So part of what I love about what we've done in going through Mark is that we get to do that every Sunday in a very clear kind of way. Now, all of scripture shows us something of the glory of Jesus in different ways, but the gospels show us the glory of Jesus in very clear and consistent ways week after week after week passage after passage and so we're already through chapter one maybe you're thinking goodness we're only through chapter one but in my mind we're already through chapter one because this has been a a joy for me and so we're on into chapter two and so the passage that we're looking at this sunday is mark chapter two verses 1 through 12 and we've already seen in this gospel how jesus has all authority Uh, over demons. He has authority over diseases like leprosy. We saw last week and now this week we're going to see he has authority even over disability. But ultimately that he is more than just a miracle worker. He is more than just a problem solver. That Jesus is the one who can forgive sins and he is the savior who has come to offer us what we need most even if We don't recognize that at first. So Mark chapter 2, let me read beginning in verse 1 if you'll follow along with me. And when he returned to Capernaum after some days, it was reported that he was at home. And many were gathered together so that there was no more room, not even at the door. And he was preaching the word to them. And they came, bringing to him a paralytic, carried by four men. And when they could not get near him because of the crowd, they removed the roof above him. And when they had made an opening, they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay. And when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. Now some of the scribes were sitting there questioning in their hearts, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? 
And immediately, Jesus, perceiving in his spirit that they thus questioned within themselves, said to them, Why do you question these things in your heart? Which is easier, to say to the paralytic, Your sins are forgiven, or to say, Rise, take up your bed and walk? But that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, he said to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And he rose and immediately picked up his bed and went out before them all, so that they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Let's pray. Lord, I ask that you would help us to understand your word help us to see the truth about jesus that it communicates to us and give us hearts that are eager and willing to listen and to believe we pray in jesus name amen so i think the main focus the main point of our passage is fairly straightforward this morning it is that our deepest need is not for God to simply fix all of our problems and improve our lives. But our deepest need is for God to forgive our sins and to restore us into a right relationship with himself. Now, I recognize that that is not terribly profound. But I think that is the main point of this text. Now, what's interesting about Mark chapter 2 is there's a lot of different subplots that we love to kind of zoom in on and that we're going to do in some ways in going on in Mark chapter 2. I mean, you have these men who demonstrate this incredible faith to get to Jesus. You've got this paralyzed person who gets healed. You've got these scribes who are doubting or questioning Jesus for the first time. We see this happen. And you have all these other different things going on. But that main overarching theme is that while Jesus does care about our physical needs, the ultimate thing he cares about is our spiritual need. That is to be forgiven and be, to be reconciled to God forever. And so as we walk through this passage, we're going to see kind of three different scenes. And so we'll, I'll give them to you here at the beginning and, and then we'll walk through them. So the first thing we're going to see is that Jesus rewards those who are persistent and even restless in their pursuit of him. Second, we're going to see that Jesus also exposes people who may publicly admire him, but who privately doubt him. And then third, we're going to see that Jesus proves he has authority in heaven by showing us his power on earth. So let's look at this first one, that Jesus rewards those who are persistent and even restless in their pursuit of him. This scene as it begins in Mark chapter 2 is similar to when Jesus was in the synagogue back in Mark chapter 1. Here there's people all gathered around Jesus and 
presumably they're gathered to him because he's teaching them with authority. It says he was preaching the word to them. So he's not necessarily doing a bunch of healings at this point as he had been doing. It seems like people had gathered around to listen to Jesus because they were drawn to his teaching and his message. They were listening to the things that he was saying and they were crowded, it seems like, in potentially in his own home. So maybe maximum, maybe 40, 50 people. So probably a gathering like this, but in a much smaller space, probably one that we might be a little less comfortable in. But everybody is kind of gathered in here, pushed very closely. And it says there's not even room at the door. You can imagine maybe there's people outside who are kind of listening in, who can't really see Jesus, but maybe they're just trying to hear him. And so all these people are gathered around to hear what he has to say, to hear what he is preaching and we can kind of picture what it would be like if we were cramped in this room and then outside we learn that these four men arrive at the house where jesus is and they're carrying their friend who is paralyzed they're carrying him on a bed or a mat that he probably that's what he spent all of his time on and that's how he traveled from one place to another which he probably didn't do very often, but they came carrying this man. And obviously we see that they arrive and they could not get near Jesus. And they, like some of the others who were sick that we've already seen in Mark's gospel, were not content just to kind of sit idly by until Jesus finished what he was doing. That one of them probably noticed, hey, there's a stairway up there to the roof of this house. What if we tried to go in, maybe not through the front door? They go up on the roof. The roof was probably flat, and it was a combination of dirt and clay and some other things mixed together. And so they just decide, what if we just start trying to remove the roof that's above them? Our text in that portion, I believe it's it's verse 4. Yeah, it says they removed the roof. Literally, it, it means that they unroofed the roof. And so you can imagine sitting in that crowd and you begin to hear some like knocking above you. And then you see some like dirt falling down and people are like brushing it off their clothing. And then you're looking up and you see sunlight start to come in and you wonder what in the world is happening. And then slowly that hole gets bigger and bigger to the point where it has to be big enough to bring down like maybe a mattress through it. And so this is no like small project. They are literally like renovating the inside of Jesus's home and the roof is opened right and then in, in verse 4 it says they made an opening then they let down the bed on which the paralytic lay and so they let him down and you wonder at this point like what what was it that motivated them to go to this kind of destruction even of property to get to Jesus I think it was compassion, at least for the four men who were able to do this. There was compassion for their friend that drove them to do whatever it took to get him to Jesus. It's probably confidence that this was actually going to work, that they weren't going to go through all this trouble only to realize that Jesus didn't have the power to, to heal. So they were clearly confident that Jesus could do it, but also they were not concerned by what anybody else thought. They were not concerned that people would be upset that they were interrupting Jesus' teaching. 
They were only concerned that their friend might be brought into contact with Jesus so that he could be healed. So to this point, this story is going as we might expect it. And this man is lowered down into the presence of Jesus. But then in verse 5, if you were a little bit caught off guard by what Jesus said, you would have been just like everybody else in there is that this man gets lowered down before Jesus. And then in verse five, Jesus says to him, son, your sins are forgiven. And you can almost hear the like sigh coming from the four friends and maybe the paralyzed man himself. As if to say we were anticipating something was about to happen, but now we're a bit confused. And what we've mentioned previously, I don't think that Jesus is saying that this man is paralyzed because he sinned in some way. If we were to go over to John 9 and read the story of the man born blind, when he is presented with that very question, Jesus says, you don't need to worry about whether or not this man sinned. That's not what happened. But this happened to him so that the power of God might be displayed through him. So I think it would be wrong if we were to assume like this paralyzed guy is just some wicked, bad dude and Jesus knows it. And so he tells him his sins are forgiven. I don't think that's necessarily what's happening. But what Jesus is doing is he is redirecting people and he's telling them that something greater is needed than physical healing that they came to Jesus for one reason, to see their friend be healed, and he actually offers them something different. He tells them that their need is actually larger. It's actually deeper than what they even recognized for themselves. It's as if you were to go to the hospital with needing stitches or something like that, and then the doctor finds out that you've got some underlying medical condition that's far more serious that you didn't even know about, but that he can help you with and has a cure for, you would be filled with gratitude at that point. And so that's essentially what Jesus is doing, is he is telling this man and everybody else that there is something that needs to be done that is greater than just this man being able to walk out of here that they need to know that their sins can be forgiven. And it's interesting that while people would have been surprised by Jesus all of a sudden saying this, nobody would have questioned that that was true. Nobody would have questioned that, yes, there's a God in heaven who's holy, and yes, we are here, and we're sinful, and we need to be made right with him. Everybody would have accepted that. And I think that's here that... When we're reading this text in the 21st century, I don't think that's a given for every one of us or people we interact with on a regular basis. If you were to ask a coworker or somebody, a friend, and say, what's your biggest need in life? I doubt that most people would say my biggest need in life is to have my sins forgiven. I think in our context, there's a couple different ways that people might respond to that. One is that they might tend to just say, well, I know God forgives and I've already kind of, I expect that to happen because he's just a God who does that. And it's almost this idea of like cheapening the idea of forgiveness because we just expect God to do that for us. 
And so, yeah, forgiveness is a need, but of course God has met that need. So I don't know if that's like what I really, really need in my life or if there's something that has to happen there that, that, that I'm missing. Or I think maybe for most people will just maybe dismiss that idea altogether. The idea that there is something inherently wrong with me that needs to be made right, like that is not necessarily something that we just easily accept. That's not necessarily something that those you come into contact with on a regular basis will just easily accept. And I think in either case, whether we like cheapen the idea of forgiveness and just say, yeah, it's easy, it's free, God does it for everybody, or if we dismiss the idea that we need to be forgiven, the root of the problem at both of those ends is that we have a diminished view of who God is. It's that we have downplayed his holiness and his purity and his perfection and his otherness. It's that we have made him perhaps too much like ourselves, that he can just sweep our sin under the rug or he can overlook it or he can forget about it as if it's not really a big deal. But the reality is that what Jesus is communicating to us is that, yes, God forgives, but that the forgiveness that he offers, it is going to be costly. We know where Jesus is headed, that he is headed to the cross. And so there is a cost to the forgiveness that God offers. And it, the cost of it is the life of his own son. That Jesus had to actually pay the price of our sin in order for us to be forgiven. But Mark is also going to show us that there is a cost to ourselves to be forgiven. That we have to die to ourselves and follow Christ if we are to be freed from our sin. That to receive the forgiveness of Jesus and to walk away as if nothing has happened and our lives have not changed is to miss the whole point. And so Jesus is saying, I can offer forgiveness and People are recognizing that, yes, we know this is the problem. And so even if we don't immediately recognize that today, Jesus is saying that that is still human beings' greatest dilemma. It's that we need to be made right with God. And and you'll notice those people who are in the crowd, we learn that there's a group of them who recognize what Jesus is saying all too well. And we learn that there are Some scribes there in verse 6, it says some of the scribes were sitting there and they were questioning in their hearts. They were saying, why does this man speak like that? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then we see that Jesus perceives in his spirit, Mark tells us, that they questioned him in this way. And now Jesus is about to expose them. They're sitting there along with everybody else, admiring and revering what he is saying and listening to him. But then the moment that he begins to, in their mind, step over the line, they immediately accuse him. That they recognize that Jesus is not just a man who's proclaiming a message of repentance and forgiveness. Any prophet in the Old Testament did that. Any preacher 
does that. John the Baptist did that. Jesus is not merely saying that you can be forgiven of your sins. He is actually claiming to have the authority to do that. Right? It's one thing if I stand up here and say, hey, you can be forgiven of your sins by looking to Christ today. That's true. It's a totally different thing if I stand up here and say, hey, I have the power to forgive your sins. If any human being, any preacher, any priest, anybody tells you that, run the other direction. Unless you're looking at Jesus here in Mark chapter 2. And these scribes recognized that Jesus was not just making any old claim. They said he is blaspheming, right? We heard it read in Exodus 34 that Danielle read for us just a moment ago, that it is the Lord alone who forgives iniquity, that nobody else can claim to do that. Daniel 9, 9 says something similarly, to the Lord our God belong mercy and forgiveness. To nobody else does that belong. But also these scribes recognize that the Lord is alone the one who can forgive and there's only one God. They knew Deuteronomy 6, 4, hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And so they charge Jesus with blasphemy because they cannot see, they cannot understand that the one God they believe in has actually the God who has condescended to take on human flesh. And so instead of stepping back and saying, maybe there's something going on here more than we can see, they just accuse him of blasphemy. And what's interesting is this is the first kind of charge that other people who oppose Jesus lay against him. He is blaspheming. It's also going to be the reason why he's crucified. In Mark 14, verse 64, maybe some of these same scribes were there, but the people who had Jesus on trial at that point, the religious leaders, they said, you have heard his blasphemy. What is your decision? And they all condemned him as deserving of death. So no matter how much proof Jesus gave them in between those two points right here and then at the end, they were resolved to the fact that this man cannot be who he claims to be. And that the most religious people in the room are the ones who Jesus perceives as being opposed to him. These scribes were experts in the Old Testament. Like I mentioned, they knew all of these things very well, but... They listened to the teaching of Jesus, but then they rejected his claim to forgive sins. And as far as we can tell, Jesus is the only one who notices it. Because they weren't maybe verbalizing this out loud, but Jesus perceived in his spirit that they were thinking these things and asked them why they questioned him. And then verse 9, now we're getting to kind of this climactic moment. He says, okay. You're questioning whether or not I can forgive sins. I know that every one of you is waiting to see me heal this guy. So which one is easier? Verse 9, which is easier to say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven, or to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk? Now, the implied answer to that is that it is easier, as Jesus is going to show, to say, rise, take up your bed, and walk. Because that's verifiable. Like you know whether or not that happens the the moment it happens, right? So Jesus says, this is an easy kind of way for me to demonstrate and prove this to you. But what's, what's harder 
is that claim that your sins are forgiven. Because no one can verify it in this moment. And it's also going to be something, as I mentioned, that's going to cost Jesus because he is going to bear the weight of those very sins that he offers to forgive. And so he's implying that it's actually, it's going to be easier, even though you're going to marvel and you're going to wonder, you're going to be amazed. It's going to be easier for me to actually tell this guy, get up off your mat and walk. And so verse 10, that's what Jesus does, right? He says, but that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins. He says to the paralytic, I say to you, rise, pick up your bed, and go home. And what happened? He got up. He rose. Immediately, he picked up his bed. So unlike the leper, he listened to the first command of Jesus. He picked up his bed and then he went out before them all so that they were all amazed and glorified God saying, we never saw anything like this. So that's where Jesus ends in our passage is that he has to prove to them that he has authority in heaven to forgive sins by doing something that they can see right in front of them that he actually can show his power on earth to heal this guy. And it's interesting that in Mark's gospel to this point, we've seen this idea of Jesus being a healer and being a great physician of someone who can diagnose problems and bring immediate healing. We recognize that he does that physically for people here. We recognize that he does that spiritually. But now in Mark chapter 2, Mark introduces a new image of Jesus into our minds that not only is he the great physician, but he is also a great high priest. That he is one who can stand in the gap between God and us and that he can actually claim to forgive the very thing that keeps us from God. And so all these people there, they were marveling. It's interesting. They they glorified God only after they saw Jesus heal the man. It doesn't say they glorified God when they heard the news, your sins are forgiven. It's almost as if Mark is saying to us, we are so quick to be amazed when something as wonderful as physical healing happens, and we should be. But we should be even more amazed at the statement, your sins are forgiven. That that is indeed the greater miracle than seeing this man get up and walk out. Okay, the greater miracle is to know that his sins are forgiven. And now I would be remiss to talk through this passage and not mention the fact that Jesus does not heal everyone in this same exact way. That the healing of this paralyzed man is not a promise that to everyone who trusts in Christ, they will also receive physical healing. In this life, at least, the Bible never promises that. I know many of you are familiar with Johnny Erickson Tata. You're familiar with her story. Um, The fact that when she was 17 years old, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay into a point that was more shallow than she thought it would be and that she was paralyzed from the neck down after that accident. 
that at 17 years old, she learned that for the rest of her life, she would not have the use of her arms below that, her legs or anything. And that she was indeed paralyzed. And she was reflecting on that time and how she read through Scripture because she was a believer. And she came to texts like Mark chapter 2. And she recognized that, okay, if I am diligently following the Lord, then why will he not bring healing to me like he did to this paralytic? And she expected that to happen. And, and, and this is what later, as she kind of reflected on that, looking back, listen to what she wrote, and I think it's helpful for us. She said, does God miraculously heal people? Well, sure he does. But in this broken world, it is still the exception and not the rule. A no answer to my request for a miraculous physical healing has meant instead that I have been purged of my sin, that I have a greater love for the lost, that I have an increased compassion on others who are disabled like me that I have a greater hope for eternity, that I have a larger appetite for grace, an increase in my faith. I have a happy longing for heaven, a desire to serve others, a delight in prayer and a hunger for God's word. Oh, bless the stern schoolmaster that is my wheelchair. That that was the instrument that God used to teach her that yes indeed it is greater that i can forgive sins and give you eternal life forever and healing in a moment as wonderful as that is that is an nothing to be compared with eternity with christ and so as we finish i think it's helpful again just perhaps to ask ourselves questions along the lines of what we talked through Seeing the persistent faith of these four men and the paralyzed man, presumably he was included as one who Jesus saw his faith as well, but seeing their persistent, even restless faith, I think this text does call us to ask the question of ourselves, do we possess that kind of persistent faith that's willing to persevere to do whatever it takes to either get ourselves to Jesus or to get others to Jesus? That would we be willing to do the same kind of thing for those in our lives who are not at this point near to Jesus? Do we have this same kind of concern for them? Also, on the other end, I think this text calls us to avoid what the scribes did here. And to ask ourselves, am I prone in any way to outwardly admire Jesus and do all the things I know he's calling me to do, but inwardly question, doubt, or even accuse him of different things. That the way that Jesus had to expose their sin was by recognizing that and calling it out. They weren't honest and open about it themselves. They didn't say, how is this not blasphemy? Will you teach us, Jesus? Instead, they stood over and above him and accused him of something 
without recognizing that it was they who needed to be corrected. And oh, I mean, if this is us, this is why we are gathered together in a church. It's why we're doing what we're doing on Wednesday nights. It's so that we can openly and honestly offer up whatever questions or concerns we have and that we can humbly submit them to Jesus, receive answers, and be helped rather than sitting with our doubts, putting on maybe a show for everybody else, and then just letting those things lead us into greater and deeper places of unbelief. You think about what might have happened for these scribes here if they had responded to Jesus in faith rather than just accuse him of blasphemy, leave and continue to say that this man is blaspheming. Maybe they would have been pulled back from eventually leading to a place where they outright rejected him. And finally, I think this text also causes us to examine our own reasons for why we do come to Jesus, why we do approach Jesus, maybe in your time in prayer, maybe your time in the word, maybe when you have needs in your life, is your primary question that you're asking Jesus is, why have you not fixed this problem yet? When instead, your primary question should be, Lord, I know you have not fixed this problem, but what is it in me that needs to be fixed first? What is it about my own life, my own thinking, my own desires that need to be reoriented and redirected so that I can better glorify you in this situation? Because here's where we're going to finish today, and it's not without hope. Jesus tells this man, your sins are forgiven, and then immediately he says, rise, take up your bed, and walk. So this guy received spiritual healing, and then very soon after that, he received physical healing. And the reality is you and I will receive both of those things as well. It may just not be as close together. If you've turned to Christ in faith, Jesus has said to us, your sins are forgiven. You have eternal life with God. Now, there may be time that elapses, but eventually when Jesus does return, he is going to bring full and complete physical healing to us. Because he is going to do more than restore our ability to walk. He is actually going to raise us from the dead. That we are going to receive new and glorious bodies where we will be united with Christ forever. And we will enjoy the fruits of life with him. Never having to worry whether or not our bodies are going to give out ever again. That you who are younger... And our bodies work well. We don't think about this often, but we should. And then we who are older, if you're feeling the effects of age and your body may be declining, maybe not working as it once did, there is a promise in this text that one day in glory, Jesus is going to restore everything that we have lost in this life. And that we will be complete and that we will be with him forever. And that we will rejoice at the fact that our sins have been forgiven. And that we have received full and complete healing once and for all. Let's pray.